Welcome on in to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And we are so grateful that you are listening to us, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you rate us, review us, give us five stars. Don't we give us four stars? We're just going to say that person's a hater. Hater. So, um, Brett, we have been away for a little while. We recorded a great episode uh, for the last one. I think it was a great episode. We'll the best. We'll let the people. <laughs> we'll let the people decide on that. But uh, I think we have another good one in store for us today. What do you think? I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be challenging, and uh, I'm sure people are going to have strong thoughts, especially on what I'm going to talk about. I'm interested to hear what people think about what I'm going to share. Yeah, absolutely. I I am too. Uh, Before we get into it, though, I just want to let you know that uh, we have our podcast now more international than ever. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the statistics lately, but we had uh, one uh, person listen from Australia and we had another person listen all the way from Ireland. So Ireland. Ireland. So we're going worldwide here. Oh, worldwide. Actually, I think I know who listened from Ireland because he reached out to me um on an app that we use to to publish this uh-huh. and uh he was like hey i think you're doing some good stuff you want to listen to my podcast <laughs> oh okay so he has like a similar he has a similar thing he's actually a pastor in ireland oh, and wow. i forgot all about that until you just mentioned it right now wow yeah. okay well uh also our podcast is now available on podbean uh, we got an email about that to doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. So if you're one of the people who uses Podbean, like it's still 2010. Uh, Never heard of it. <laughs> I did not get into the podcast uh, arena until a couple of years ago. Well, so. I, I, me too. I mean, I, I really only started listening to podcasts recently, but I went to college for radio and TV broadcasting. That was my major. And one of the things they were teaching us, this was back in like 2009, 2010, was like the how podcasts were going to be like the next media platform to kind of take off. And one of the earliest uh, podcast publishers was Podbean. Let me tell you about this cool, fancy new thing that's going to happen called a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and now everyone knows what it is. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Um, anyway, let's go ahead and get into it here for our friends in Ireland and elsewhere around the world. Um, I believe that I am the one who gets to call the coin flip today. Yes. No rock, paper, scissors involved. So. And hopefully I can flip it and it actually flip. We all remember the great no flip. The great no flip, yeah, that's Of right. like episode 12 or something. Yep. So I'll flip it. All, all right. right. Here you we ready? go. Episode 17, coin flip. I will call tails. Tails. Here we go. Three, two, one. It did flip, and it is tails. All right. Uh, this one I'm actually going to go ahead and go first on. I Take deferred it. last time, but here we go. Take it. Uh, I have been reexamining some of the common church traditions within the United States and comparing them to Scripture to see how biblical they really are and how much they're actually in line or out of line with the practices of the New Testament church. And today I want to talk about two such traditions of the modern church system that go hand in hand, and those are titles and the divide between clergy and laity. Now, it's clearly obvious to anyone who has spent any amount of time within any modern church in America that there is an invisible line of separation between the clergy and the laity, or as I've come to refer to them, between the pulpit people and the pew people. Even if some do not want to admit it, it's there. 
No matter how much it gets covered up by talk of everyone being a family, the division exists. And one of the reasons it exists is because of the titles and offices that have come to be given to the clergy. So let's dig a bit deeper and examine the one title and office which is more prevalent in Protestantism than any other, that of the modern pastor. Now, I expect more blowback from this topic than any other that I've discussed so far. And the reason is because the pastor is the fundamental figure of the Protestant church. If you remove the pastor, most churches would be thrown into a panic. But the profound irony is that there is not a single verse in the entire New Testament that supports the existence of the modern-day pastor. He simply did not exist in the early church. And in my decade plus of studying scripture, I have yet to find anyone who even remotely resembles the modern pastor. In fact, if you can find a church in the New Testament who has one main spiritual leader titled as a pastor who was receiving a fixed salary in exchange for preaching a weekly sermon to the same congregation week after week, month after month, year after year, who also had a position of oversight that was above any of those titled as elders, who also was expected to visit with anyone who was sick or hurting within the congregation before any of those within the congregation themselves visited. If you can find that situation in any church in the New Testament, my friend Brett will give you $500,000 cash money. You better know what you're talking about. Well, Brett, don't worry about this, my friend, because this is not something that can be found at all in the New Testament. Now, someone may say, but pastors are in the Bible, aren't they? And to that I say, yes, the word pastors does appear in the New Testament. We find in Ephesians 4.11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Now, the following observations can be made about this verse. First of all, this is the only verse in all of the New Testament in which the word pastors is used. There's more verses that talk about snake handling even. Secondly, the word is plural. It's pastors. And this is significant. It means that there is no biblical basis for any church having a single pastor. Third, the Greek word that Paul uses is poimen, and it literally means shepherds. Therefore, pastor is a metaphor used to describe a particular function in the church. It is not an office or a title as it is used today. A first century shepherd had nothing to do with the professional and specialized sense that it has come to have in contemporary Christianity. Ephesians 4.11 is not describing a pastoral office, but merely one of many functions of the saints in in the early church, the function of providing nurture and care for God's sheep. And this is a function that anyone within the body may have. And it is therefore a profound error to confuse shepherds with an office or a title as it is commonly conceived today. Because what we have today is nothing less than a glorification of the clergy. 
they are subtly or not so subtly seen by others and sometimes by themselves as better than the laity. And this has created hierarchies of power and control within the church. It has opened the door for spiritual abuses and manipulations. It has affected both the Catholic Church with its pope and cardinals and bishops and the Protestant Church with its head pastor and senior pastors and deacons and denominational lords. But one thing is certain is that this was not how it was in the first century church. The Christians themselves led the church, every member of the body ministering to one another and Christ as the direct head of the church. It wasn't until the second and third centuries that church leaders began to create a divide between clergy who were elevated and given a special distinction apart from the laity or the commoners. You can even see some of the early ideals that led to this divide creeping in towards the close of the first century. In 3 John verse 9, John wrote about a man named Diotrephes, who loved to be first, to have preeminence. And we see it in the letters that Christ wrote to the churches. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Christ dictates to John seven letters to seven churches in Asia. And he says something interesting. He says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he warns the church in Smyrna in verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 2, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, while we don't specifically know what the teachings of the Nicolaitans were, the meaning of the word Nicolaitans is very interesting. It combines two Greek roots, Nico, which means to conquer or rule over, and laity, which means the people. So, Nicolaitans, therefore, means those who rule over the people, the laity. Some scholars have suggested that this refers to the development of an early clergy and a divide between clergy and laity that some in the early church wanted to have. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not personally condemning the men who are pastors. I know many of them personally who are wonderful, faithful men who are honest about their own struggles who do not attempt to elevate themselves over others and are sincere in their desire to serve Christ. They wanted to do something to serve the Lord with their lives. And the church system gives very few options to do that. However, the system is what's at issue because I cannot honestly tell you that I have not also encountered those in pastoral offices who would be called Nicolaitans those who rule over the people, that is, narcissistic, overbearing manipulators who use their role and their perceived authority to coerce others into following their will. But then again, the church system affords ample opportunities to do just that. Now, the history of how this function came to be an office and a title is complex and more detailed than we have time for today. 
But may I say the contemporary pastor is the most unquestioned fixture in modern Christianity, yet there is no scriptural support for the existence of this office. Rather, the present-day pastor was born out of the single bishop rule first spawned by Ignatius and Cyprian. The bishop evolved into the local presbyter. In the Middle Ages, the presbyter grew into the Catholic priest. And by the way, I'm speaking of the office here, not the individual. Catholic priests had seven duties at the time of the Reformation. Preaching, administering the sacraments, saying prayers for the flock, living a disciplined, godly life, administering church rites, supporting the poor, and visiting the sick. Well, the Protestant pastor takes on all of these roles, plus he sometimes blesses civic events. In other words, the contemporary Christian pastor is the medieval Catholic priest in different clothes. It is a title and an office which, as part of the church system, perpetuates a divide between clergy and laity and hinders every member being able to fully function as part of the body. Okay, I would love it if you would expound on what you think the difference is between the the office of elder and the office slash function of pastor. Are they not the same thing? Uh, well, I mean, I think in the New Testament, they're more or less the same thing. Uh, I don't think that there is an office slash title. I think that they are uh, designations and uh, gifts and um, functions within within the church. I think in contemporary Christianity, there has come to be a difference. There has come to be an office of pastor and a, a title of elder. And usually in, in church government today, the head pastor uh, creates the, the goals for the organization and the elders uh, make sure that that goal gets carried out. So the pastor and the elder, you know, a pastor may serve as an elder in, in contemporary church governments, but uh, it's really the, the head pastor or the lead pastor of a, of a church that's, um, that's the head. Isn't it isn't it good whenever there is efficiency in a local body where decisions are able to be made and the body is able to move forward quickly on things uh, and you, and you kind of get that with a smaller select group of people? Isn't that a good thing whenever things are efficient and moving in um, moving in a set direction and everyone's plowing forward because? We have someone who uh, is giving someone or a small group of people giving um, giving direction to this congregation, um, choose to be a part of it or don't, but this is the direction that we're going in, and being efficient, a good thing. Uh, I mean, I think that it can be a good thing, but more than more often than not, it's it's a bad thing in that. Uh, well, there's several things. Number one, that's not how the early church functioned. The early church didn't have one person who said, this is what we're going to move forward with doing. This is the goal that we have. We're going here. The, the, New, the New Testament church 
govern themselves. That's the reason why Paul never stayed in a place for, for much longer. Like the longest place he ever stayed in was, I think, in Ephesus for about three years. He left intentionally so that those people there could then learn to function as a Christian community by themselves. And and when, you know, things had to be decided, it was the community deciding it as a group. It wasn't one person saying, well, this is what we're going to do and everybody else following after that. Um, uh, another thing is there is one person who is sort of the leader of a, a church organization. Oftentimes their goal is is couched in – uh, well, this is the vision that God has given us, and this is the direction that we're going to go, or this is the vision that God has given me, and this is the direction that we're going to go. Well, think about what that is saying bib- biblically, and I think I'll probably have a thesis regarding this in the future, regarding this whole uh, language and culture of vision casting, but what is that doing? That's creating, that's necessarily making that one lead pastor a prophet. That person is saying, I have received special revelation from God in terms of what we need to be doing, and that's what we're going to do. So follow me this way. You're, you're necessarily making that person a prophet when you couch it in language of this is the vision that God has given to us. And that, that can be very dangerous. There's, there's numerous warnings throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament about false prophets receiving visions and, and leading the, the people into directions that God doesn't want to take them. Um, and so I think more often than not, that's actually what we see uh, when we talk about, you know, you can say, well, it's more efficient, but I think that it's also much more dangerous when we give one person that much uh, that much command. But isn't it uh, let's let's think about a church, a local church body in its infancy. You want to call it a church plant or or whatever. Someone's going to start a new church. Um, isn't isn't something like that necessary? It, it's it would be very difficult to get a whole group of people together to start. Um, to start a church and to have the dedicated time um, to do that. It's it's very labor-intensive to start a new church. Um, so isn't it necessary, especially in the infancy of, of a new church, uh, a new local body of the church, um, to have one person that is guiding it? And then, and then, you know, they can train up people and then, Past responsibility, right? I think I think there's something to be said uh, in the way that Paul planted churches. He uh, would go in somewhere, start preaching and teaching, train up people, and then he would pass along. And he was kind of the one man show uh, for a little bit during the embassy of that local body. Well, I think that that's true, and I think that for a time you may need that for for those people, especially if they're new believers, new Christians, to to be taught. The foundations, the foundational truths of of the gospel. But if you look at the New Testament model of when churches were were started, church planters deliberately left the church so that the church could then function under the headship of Christ. And if a church planter stays at a church, the members there are naturally just going to look to him to lead. And so, what happens is you hinder 
every member functioning. Maybe a member has a gift for teaching. Maybe a member has a gift for compassion and, and prayer uh, and you know visiting the sick and the poor and taking care of others. Well, the pattern throughout the New Testament is that the church planters, Paul, the other apostolic workers, they always left after they laid the foundation. And, you know, there's, there's a detailed discussion of this in a book by Frank Viola, which a lot of the notes that I have, I'm, I'm kind of drawing from that. But he refers to uh, another book by Watchman Nee, which is called The Normal Christian Church Life. Um, and it's from a long time ago, from back in 1980, that book was published. But it goes more in depth into uh, when we look to one person to teach every week, to prayer, uh, say the prayers for the saints every week, to, to visit the sick, to take care of you know the poor. We just rely on that person to live the Christian life for us. And so every member being able to function and to, to use their spiritual gifts, it's not able to happen. I, I think what you're saying is true. A church in its infancy does need some direction for a time. They need it for a time. They need to be taught those foundational truths. But then if we're following the New Testament church model, that person needs to go elsewhere so that those, that Christian community can be directly led by Christ. You're going through a list of things that you told us about in a previous episode. Where do you think you're going to go next? Well, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I talked about in this is is how having a um, – one uh, p- single pastor for a church hinders the body functioning. Well, I think in the next one, I'm going to kind of look at the other side of that and look at what it does to those who are in positions of clergy and of pastors and what it does to them, uh, you know, not only with the stress and the strain of of trying to live up to these unimaginable standards that are placed on them because they're in that position of leadership, but also this this window of divide, what it creates in terms of being able to uh, be obscure and to hide their true selves from their congregants. Um, and so I'm going to look at kind of the other side of this effect uh, in our next episode. All right. That sounds, uh, sounds really intriguing. So I'm going to wrap up my uh, little mini-series on relationships by actually taking on um, what used to be super controversial in this country, but uh, it's kind of not been discussed or talked about even in evangelical churches as of recently because there are other matters uh, related to this that get all the attention. But this this matter uh, concerning divorce is actually the foundation of a lot of our issues that we're having right now. I think, uh, but I'm not I'm not going to go uh, on that route. I'm going to come at it from the covenantal side, uh, which is what we talked about uh, last week. We talked about covenants versus contracts, and uh, essentially what we said was that contracts, uh, two parties uh, come and they have their terms. If one doesn't live up to the terms, then the other one can break the contract, right? In in a covenant, we bring terms, we make promises, but whenever uh, one of the promises fails, that the other party still lives up to their their term, 
their their promises that they made because they enter into this uh, more binding um, and in the case of marriage specifically lifelong commitment to the other person even whenever they don't live up to their end of the bargain. So the question that we left off with uh, essentially was this, what do we do with with the breaking of a covenant? And what do we do with uh, the Bible's teachings on the breaking of the marriage covenant? Because there are some passages uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that do seem to permit the breaking of the marriage covenant. And uh, I think what we what we want to do from the very beginning is establish that that marriage is formal, explicit, covenantal relationship uh, that should be held in extremely high regard, probably the the highest regard of any earthly relationship, because it's not only a covenant um, this this coming together and and laying down of terms, it's also the creation of a whole new family. And we talked about last week how how family, uh, in my estimation, is an inherent covenant in and of itself. So not only are you making an explicit covenant saying, I'm going to do this and not do that um, for the rest of my life, but you're also creating this new inherent covenant because you are now a family. So what happens whenever someone breaks their side of a covenant so uh, so far as to warrant divorce, the 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 complete disillusion of that covenant, and we know that these things like someone will break their terms of the covenant. So what what do we do whenever that happens? What counts as it that's a step too far, and what counts as not a step too far? From a Christian perspective on it, and I'm assuming that you enter into marriage viewing it as a full, lifelong commitment, covenant, I think there are a couple verses that I'm going to look at uh, for these people, not entering in, into a contract like a, a secular person may, or they may enter into it covenantally as well, but a Christian will enter in, in, into it covenantally always. Uh, we're going to look at Mark 10, verses uh, 1 through 12. I'm not going to read the whole thing, and we're going to look at Matthew nine nineteen. So as we look at Mark 10, basically the these teachers are coming to Jesus and they're asking him. They're trying to basically catch him in some kind of uh, mental gymnastic game, right, trying to get him to say the wrong thing. Um, and so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That starts in verse 2. And he says, what did Moses command you? So Jesus is looking back and they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Right, so it was established by Moses that divorce was acceptable in that culture in that time, and Jesus then answers them and he says, "He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He goes back and he basically recaps Genesis, uh, the creation story, and says, talking about how God made people for one another." that they should leave and no one should should separate. They become one flesh, right? Uh, but he says that Moses, uh, God permitted this to happen because of the hardness of the people's hearts, okay? And then he goes on 
And Jesus gives a little bit more clarifying statement. Verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right. So here we are, Jesus and Mark teaching that God permitted it before because of the hardness of people's hearts. And then now he doubles down and he says, and I tell you that if you leave someone and you marry another person, you're committing a sin. Okay? So it was permitted before, but only because you're already sinful. And this is how it really actually is. Okay? So that's that's Mark's recording of this. Now let's flip over to Matthew nine nine or nineteen nine. Okay, and there's a there's an additional sentence here that everyone looks at. Okay, in Matthew, he told them Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, here we go, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we have this exception clause that is written in to this Matthew 19 recording of the events, all right? So there are some popular interpretations of this. I I don't think you can look at this. You can't look at what Jesus is saying and say, you know what, divorce just for divorce sake is acceptable. You, you, there's no way that you could actually interpret uh, Jesus' teachings uh, as such. You can't just sign a certificate of, of divorce. He condemns that. He said that God only allowed that before because of the hardness of people's hearts. All right? So he's not saying that at all. But I do think that there are, there are like three different interpretations, and I'm going to start with maybe the most open ones and come to the more restrictive ones. The first one would be that the breaking of the covenant, the quote-unquote covenant, by egregious offenses permits divorce. Okay, so a Bible teacher that is saying this would say that the covenant is for life, except for whenever one of the partners in this covenantal relationship commits such an egregious act that they are essentially saying that this relationship is dead, you are dead to me, right? So an example of this may be uh, sexual immorality, but we'll get there here in a second. It could also be mental and physical abuse. I have heard Bible teachers say that such egregious offenses such as continued physical and mental abuse does permit divorce because it's effectively saying that you as a person are dead to me and I'm only using you as a thing. You're not a person. You're not of worth anymore. And by them saying that through their actions, that permits the divorce, okay? That it permits the divorce and the remarriage because the treatment of one another, to one another uh, from one side to another is such that they're effectively saying that you're dead to me, okay? So there are some other egregious offenses that would rise to that level that these Bible teachers would say. Okay, so let's narrow it down a little bit more. The next one would be uh, exactly what Jesus says uh, as we read it in our English, uh, I ran it from the Christian Standard Bible right then, except for sexual immorality, okay? So only those things that are sexually immoral, right, have to do with physical uh, sexual acts are the only ways to permit divorce and then the remarriage thereafter, right? Through that physical contact, through that choice, they are saying that I'm going to share this part of my life with other people. 
um, therefore breaking a covenant is a physical expression of a spiritual reality of their relationship with that person. Then, And so that breaks the covenant, and Jesus says that that is permitted. And so there are varying degrees of that. Uh, however you want to define sexual immorality, well, it's not however you want to define. There's there's a whole word, uh, porneia, that has to do with any type of sexual immorality, not just, you know, going all the way or whatever, that that you can get into that. But that is a more restrictive definition that it has only to do with sexual immorality, divorce and remarriage thereafter. The third and most restrictive, I would say, would be that nothing makes it fully acceptable to divorce and remarry, but just separate. Perhaps it's a legal divorce, but then you are not to take another spouse, right? Uh, we separate the legal part of the divorce from the spiritual part of the divorce. And while you may be legally divorced from someone, you're not going to take another spouse until you die or until the other person dies, right? And this was probably the most prevalent interpretation of this in the last 2,000 years leading up to right now. The more restrictive view is, uh, for lack of a better phrase, it's safer, right? It's safer to make sure that we don't actually sin in these regards. I mean, it makes me think about uh, Victorian England, whenever someone was uh, divorced and remarried, they were not allowed to ascend to the throne because they were supposed to be the, the head of the Church of England, and they can't be because they are living in sin, essentially, right? So this interpretation removes that altogether. And there are many Bible teachers who continue to stand by this position, uh, saying that what if you look at the specific words that Jesus chooses to use, whenever he says, whenever someone marries another person, that specific word actually refers to not the marriage like we think about it now, but actually the engagement period. They would say that someone is married to another person, but they haven't actually uh, fulfilled the marriage to completion, right? Uh, that's where we find Joseph and Mary. Whenever Jesus is conceived, they're not fully married to one another. They're kind of in this engagement period, but they people still refer to them as married. So there are people that look at the, the specific words that Jesus uses and says, uh, and they say that, well, that only occurs in the engagement period, basically, where they've made this commitment to one another, but they haven't fully consummated the marriage. They haven't seen it to its completion. And so once that happens, there is no tearing them apart. They might be able to legally divorce, but there's no remarriage after that without living in sin. So those three interpretations, I'm not going to say that any of them is more valid than the other one. I do think that there are, obviously, the last one is a more safe interpretation. And if you were to follow that, it would be very hard to live in sin thereafter, right? But I think there are, are great Bible teachers that, that teach all three things from all three, uh, from three different interpretations, and they all have very valid reasons for teaching it as such. Even if there's not a clear answer, I think there are some some takeaways here. One, we cannot take divorce lightly. What we've done in America the last 60, 70 years is take divorce lightly and made it widely available for very minuscule, if not outright, no good reasons whatsoever. And we are now reaping the effects of that in many different ways. And I'm not going to get into the ways that we are reaping those effects, 
But by taking marriage lightly and just willy-nilly entering into a divorce culture, we are now reaping uh, effects that are not good. Divorce cannot be uh, decided on a whim. It can't be decided in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself in. I believe that these serious things, whether it be divorce or something else, you have to think through these things and decide what you believe about it. As long as you can have biblical uh, foundations for it and support from from people that uh, that you trust and have taken the time to to study and have reasons for interpreting what Jesus said on the matter, you have to decide that before this situation comes about. And hopefully, it never does. Hopefully, you never find yourself in a situation where you're breaking a covenant like this. Uh, breaking a marriage covenant. But I hope that you've done your your thoughts, that you have your convictions about it before it happens, because you don't uh, just sit around and then whenever it's game time, you decide, I'm going to start playing the game. You train and you prepare for the game. Sometimes it comes about and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes situations come about in a game or situations don't come about in the middle of a game that you train for, but you still train for it in case it happened. We should, in all seriousness, continually take in Scripture and God's instructions and be prepared and have thoughts and have convictions on these serious things before they actually happen to us. That way we can be proactive and sticking to our beliefs concerning this topic. So throughout this uh, series on relationships, you have been dealing with these covenant relationships, and this one specifically has to do with marriage in terms of probably the highest and loftiest way that one can deal with these in terms of a covenant relationship. And that's that's great. I think that that's awesome. But I, I want to bring it down into the nitty-gritty, to the day-to-day where you and I live, where the rubber meets the road and the shoe leather touches the sidewalk. So in the world that we live in today, and you and I are both um, part of the, the called-out body of believers, and we are both uh, in local church communities, there are people in the local Christian communities who have been through a divorce. And, you know, those who maybe are considering a divorce. So when we encounter those people, say we encounter, first of all, uh, say we encounter somebody who they're, they're a Christian and they're divorced. And it wasn't for, uh, you know, for one of the reasons, the, the exceptions to the rule that Jesus gives there. It wasn't for any kind of sexual immorality. They did, you know, follow the, the, the way of society and divorce for, you know, because my, my husband put his dirty underwear on the stairs or something like that. That's why they got divorced. And they're, you know, maybe they're seeing that, uh, the, the guilt of that, and they're they're just thinking, well, do I have to remain single forever? Like, what's what what hope do we have for that person, Brett? The hope that we have is that uh, this is not the unforgivable sin, right? The grace of God covers uh, a multitude of sins, including whatever situation uh, you may have made for yourself or you inherited, right? 
and maybe you made an incorrect decision before. Maybe you made a tough decision where it's a gray area. There is, it wasn't black and white for you. You can rest in the fact that there is sufficient grace for that and that you can move forward with your life knowing that that doesn't make you any – it doesn't make you a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because we as called-out ones, as followers of Christ and co-heirs with Christ are elevated to his standing because you may have had an issue with, with marriage or divorce or any, any anything uh, else surrounding this, this covenant relationship. But uh, I have my own stuff. Cullen has his own stuff, and all of it is what separates us completely from God, and he fills in the gaps. He fills in your gaps, and he fills in my gaps. Yeah, we should wrestle with what, what has happened in the past and and move forward from there. That's why it's really important, I think, to, um, to, to study and be prepared for these things, for these decisions. Uh, we're not always going to be prepared for everything, but it just shows why being in Scripture and being uh, in prayer— and knowing the heart and nature of God is important as soon and as early as, as possible. All right, now let's go to the other side of that spectrum, and we encounter somebody in our church community who, you know, maybe they're uh, a member of the local church, maybe they're even a leader in the local church, and they're married, and there's been some type of sexual immorality on the part of either on their part or on the part of their spouse, whether it's adultery or just some type of sexual immorality. Maybe, you know, maybe he's addicted to porn. Maybe she is making out with some random guy that she met in the bar. Whatever it is, this is a married couple that has experienced some type of sexual immorality or adultery, and they're trying to work through it. What hope do we have for those people? The hope that we have is um, that one, the grace covers that. But two, if you find yourself on the receiving end of something like that, it's always great to remind yourself that uh, the seed that ended up blossoming into sexual immorality for your, your spouse, that same seed resides in you. And it very well could have been you that that broke this covenant in that way. And that puts it into perspective. That's not particularly hope-giving. That actually makes us feel a little bit bad at first, right? But it turns into being hope-giving because if you have faith that God can can shield your heart and restore your heart, even though you have the same inclination inside of you, the same seed inside of you, the hope is he can also do that for your spouse. If he can do it for you and if you believe that and, and claim it as your own, but I think we can't, like God can work in us and and uh, continually sanctify us to become more like him. He can do that for your spouse as well. The, this one thing does not have to define them. They can uh, be repentant um, and understand that that what they did was uh, sinful, and turn from it, and run towards God, and run towards you at the same time, um, and God can work through that. All right. Uh, any final thoughts, and also where are you taking us in our next episode? Yeah, my final thoughts are: if divorce is something that's happened to you or in your family, 
uh, or something that you're struggling with right now, our prayers are with you. Always remember that it doesn't define you. What does define you is uh, the grace and forgiveness that, that Jesus bought for us and that God gives us. That is our ultimate our ultimate identity. And uh, we can move forward every day knowing that. And as I look forward, uh, I think I'm going to uh, move into the the church uh, government area, which is kind of what you were talking about. And I'm going to talk a little bit about excellence in, in churches and how um, some uh, who are in charge expect, quote unquote, excellence in all that the church does and how that is on the surface God-honoring, but in practical use, um, perhaps uh, God-marginalizing. So... All right. Well, because you said the key word marginalizing, that means that we've come to the end of our time today. That was the secret hidden word, and I think it was one of the last ones that you said. It took us a long time to get there, but we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Uh, Make sure that you share this podcast with your friends. Rate us, review us. We don't just ask this because we want you to leave us five stars, and we, we think that if you don't give us five stars, you're a hater. Leaving us a, a comment, a rating, or a review really does help other people find the podcast. Yeah, that is the number one way that uh, Apple Podcasts particularly gets our podcast in front of other people's eyes and ears. Yep, absolutely. So make sure you go ahead and do that. And if you have a comment, a question, uh, we, we still have that, uh, that invitation out there. If you have any questions about uh, the Bible or just what we've been talking about in general, send us an email, doublecheckpodcast at gmail. Dot com, and we'd love to hear from you. All right. We'll see you next time. See you.